Thank you all so much for joining us as we kick off Holy Week with Palm Sunday. So if you are not familiar, this is um, a part of the, uh, a, a Christian calendar that many Christians all over the world have used for centuries that um, uh, memorializes the events that happened in the last week of Jesus' life leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. So today is Sunday, was traditionally called Palm Sunday, and that's what we'll talk about today. Why is it called that? What's going on? And then there is also, there are other significant days throughout this week that Christians remember. So there's one, you may not be familiar with the term, but in many places it's called Spy Wednesday. Sounds very fun, like a thriller there. Um, it actually uh, recognizes Judas's betrayal of Jesus that uh, precipitated the events of Jesus' arrest uh, and, uh, and his uh, execution. Then there's Maundy Thursday, which is a, a famous part of this calendar, followed by, of course, Wednesday, Friday. I'm assuming, I think that's how the pattern goes. No, that is uh, Good Friday. Maundy uh, just it refers to foot washing. So it's actually remembering when Jesus washed his disciples' feet during the, their last supper together. Good Friday remembers the, the, the Jesus' execution, his death on the cross. And then Holy Saturday uh, um, reflects on the time that Jesus spent uh, in the grave, which of course then will be followed by Easter Sunday uh, for next week. Now, with, uh, you might be thinking too, like, oh, Holy Saturday, what? Uh, it seems like there's probably not much going on there since Jesus is like spending time in the grave, but there is, this is how, how rich the discussions around Holy Week can be. Um, if you think that there's not much happening, there is actually a movie coming out, a sequel to The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson that specifically focuses on the events that occur on Holy Saturday. So um, this, is, uh, th this is from the, the movie, uh, the, the description um, from IMDb about this movie is that it's a sequel to The Passion of the Christ. It focuses on the events that occurred uh, the, in the three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. When Jesus, uh, when Jesus Christ descended into Abraham's bosom to preach and resurrect uh, Old Testament saints. And you're like, I don't remember that uh, occurring in the Gospels that I read, but it's actually riffing off of traditions that seem to be going on in the New Testament uh, and the Old Testament itself. So for example, in 1 Peter, there's an allusion where it says, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. So this, is, this has been picked up by many Christians uh, over the years to reflect perhaps that's, that's what was going on uh, on um, Holy Saturday. Then there's another tradition, also part of this, the first and second Peter uh, tradition that says, God did not have pity on the angels that sinned, uh, God had them tied up and thrown into the dark pits of hell until the time of judgment. Talking about those same like saints in this gloomy prison uh, that Jesus may have spoken to uh, while he was um, uh, while he was 
in the grave. Uh, and then that's actually alluding to another part in Genesis, talking about the, this mysterious group, the sons of God, who saw that the daughters of humans were fair and they took wives for themselves uh, of all that they chose. The Nephilim, this is a legendary name given to them, were on the earth in those days and also afterward uh, <clears throat> when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. So there's, there's a lot going on. I know that we just went from thinking, I thought nothing happened happened on Holy Saturday to too much happened on Holy Saturday. My man, Jesus, don't even take a rest day when he dies. This is all the stuff that he was doing. So this is, you know, there's so much that we can always, of course, uh, in the days and years to come, uh, unpack together with, um, with Holy Week. But today, uh, we're going to focus our story on Palm Sunday. And to do that, this is actually a story that occurs um, in all four Gospels. We're going to read the one in Matthew and then kind of bring in voices from, from the other ones uh, as we go along. So let's read through this. So in Matthew it says, when they had come near, uh, come near to Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their, their cloaks on them and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him that followed him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So that is, that's, our, that's our main story that we'll anchor off of for today. Um, a great way that I think actually to unpack uh, what's going on in this story is to focus on many of the, the vivid nouns that occur uh, throughout the text that we just read, the people, places, and things. Um, and if you are actually, um, uh, if you're, uh, have been in the circles where you uh, see how nouns are taught to children these days in school, as I have witnessed through our own kids, there's actually been an expansion to thinking of a noun as a person, place, or thing. It actually, uh, it now includes animals as well, which I really actually appreciate. I think it's actually part of a great Jesus ethic to be expansive of how we think of our, our animal, our fellow uh, uh, living beings uh, on earth. And so they've broken out things to no longer include animals as well. That's why our kids, when they tell me what nouns are, they say this. And I think that's great. And that actually does correspond to what I want to, us to focus on today. So the people, places, things, and animals. Now, in the future, probably a generation from now, school kids will come back and tell you that a noun also includes chat GPT, right? It's a very natural uh, evolution of, of how we think about what it means to be alive. And if you think that that's funny, then I think that you don't take seriously what Wally did to our hearts uh, in, uh, in that movie so many years ago, right? Because if you don't think that that's a sentient being, maybe you're not the human after all. 
So here we go. Things, animals, places, people. That's what we'll be talking about in our, in our Palm Sunday story. So let's start, uh, and then they will be corresponding to these, these different images that we've been talking about. We'll do the palm branch, donkey, temple, and crowd. So those are, that's what we'll be talking about. Let's talk about the palm branch first. It's an appropriate place to start, given that uh, that is the, the name of the day that uh, we have given this. There is a very helpful context that actually occurs in the Old Testament to give you an idea of like what, what it meant for this crowd that was following Jesus to wave palm branches and shout Hosanna. The challenge though is, is that that, that biblical context does not occur in your uh, Old Testament Protestant Bibles. It actually gets fleshed out really well in the Old Testament um, Catholic Bible. So there are, if you, in case you didn't know, there are actually more books uh, that are part of the Old Testament canon in the Catholic tradition. It's one that, I mean, many of the people in this room were Protestants. You may not be familiar with some of these at all. I'm sure that you would look at this list and I, like I could have made up some of these and you don't know whether it's actually part of the, the uh, Old Testament Catholic canon or not. You're looking at it like, what does Esther plus mean? Uh, does that, is that like you gotta pay for like bonus content in these books? <laughs> it can be very confusing. It's actually, these are, they're extra chapters to the books, Esther and Daniel, that we have in the, the Protestant Bible. But the, um, it, among these books, there is actually um, First and Second Maccabees in particular that give us some very helpful context for what is going on in, uh, on Palm Sunday. So with, um, with the book Second Maccabees, it's helpful to understand a little bit of backdrop before we start reading just parts of this that, that highlight um, what, what's going on on Palm Sunday. So the, the Second Maccabees tells, uh, it recounts, events in Israel's life a couple centuries before Jesus's time. It takes place, uh, the events are described at a time when Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a Greek Hellenistic king um, who ruled over Judea, um, was uh, from, from the way that the Maccabean account tells it, was an especially harsh Greek king over that uh, area. He is known to have harshly persecuted devout Jews and um, both in both um, physical and psychologically uh, devastating ways. So for example, this Greek king uh, sacrificed pigs in the temple complex uh, and sprinkled pig blood and skin um, in the altar uh, and over their Bibles. And there is an account where uh, he forced the high priest even to, uh, to eat pig skin, right? Which is, which is unclean by uh, Jewish ritual standards. And, and then part of that, this strife between this Hellenistic king and the Jewish people, um, there were ensuing battles between the two that ultimately escalated in, um, in the king banning uh, many Jewish rituals uh, and the establishing the worship of Zeus and other gods inside the temple area. So that's, that's what we're talking about as on the, in the back of uh, Jewish people's minds in the days of Jesus when they, when they thought about this, this Maccabean context. And so here is um, a, a part of the, the Maccabean context that actually kind of shares what happened. So in 2 Maccabees in particular tells the story of Judas Maccabee who led a revolt that successfully overthrew this Greek king and reestablished the holiness of 
of the temple. It's actually um, the, like celebrating that uh, reestablishment is essentially the, the event behind Hanukkah that Jewish people uh, celebrated then uh, and today. So here's, here's how that the, um, the joy uh, is described in 2 Maccabees. The Maccabee and his companions, with the Lord leading them, recovered the temple and the city. They demolished the altars that the foreigners built near the marketplace, as well as the sacred precincts. They cleansed the temple and made another altar. So, and then it, it, describing the celebration. So they held ivy wands, beautiful branches, and also palm leaves, and offered hymns to the one who had made the purification of his own temple possible. They voted and issued a public decree that all Jews should celebrate these days each year. And so the matter concerning Antiochus called Epiphanes came to an end. So that's the kind of celebration and hope that they had in mind when they thought of like celebrating with palm branches. And you can actually see um, around uh, in, in the couple centuries before Jesus and a couple centuries after Jesus. So we're talking like hundreds of years that Jesus was right in the middle of that, these, um, that there were coins with these palm branches on them imprinted as like a, it's like a celebration of Jewish revival and Jewish nationalism. That's what it meant in those days. So then when you see Jesus coming into town and you see the crowd that's with him waving palm branches, they are, they are putting Jesus on the level of that Maccabean leader who was able to overthrow oppression from the, the foreign oppressors that be. And so when they say, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, they have these kinds of expectations in mind. Now, even though Maccabee had successfully led that revolt, there was still a sense for many Jewish people in the centuries leading up to Jesus, especially in Jesus' circles, that they were not truly free. Um, and they, of course, like when Jesus enters the story, they are under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so what had happened in that, in that period of time is that there was a, a hope that sharpened that there would be a messianic figure that would be perhaps like uh, Judah Maccabee, that would actually once and for all truly overthrow all foreign oppressors forever and, and therefore establish peace and justice in Israel. And this is what that clearly, the crowd that's following Jesus in, they're imputing that hope onto Jesus. When they say, when they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, as, as we saw in the song that we sang um, leading up to this, it, was, it means God save us. Um, but by then, of course, by the time they were chanting it like this, it really meant, it was more like a, a confident assertion of that. Like it's almost to say, God will save us. They're cheering that over and over. That's, that's what they're hoping Jesus will do. That's, that's where the crowd is at. And so it's within that backdrop in mind that it's helpful to think about the, uh, the next part of the, the story, that Jesus is riding into town with these expectations behind him on a donkey. Um, you know, as, as I was uh, prepping for this uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Danielle actually asked me, she's like, all right, uh, what, let me know if you need anything while you're prepping. What do you think? Do you think you'll need a donkey that day? Like actually, like a literal one as a, as a prop, which I think we've done in the past. And uh, I uh, always greatly appreciate Pastor Danielle and like board member Christine's resourcefulness for like getting stuff uh, for Spark. I was amazed that you could just ask me if uh, those were among the things uh, that I needed. But no, there's no donkey here today. I, I, 
I think there will be a petting zoo next week. Maybe not. Sorry if I false promised that. We've done that in the, in the past, but um, no donkey today. The uh, only jackass going to be up here today is me. <laughs> so uh, no, there will, my, my words will have to do the, the heavy lifting of what we're talking through. One detail to actually um, kind of sort through from the start uh, about the donkey will actually help us kind of figure out really what... Um, what the writers of the Gospels are trying to do um, in bringing this detail to light. And that actually occurs, like when you read across the Gospels, a question arises of whether there is one donkey or two that uh, Jesus rides in on. So uh, the text that we had just read earlier says, um, it talks about two, uh, a donkey and a colt that, that is with that donkey. But the other three Gospels, only describe one donkey. Where Jesus is going to the village, you'll find there a colt uh, that has never been ridden. Uh, and, and that's how they, they talk about it. So, the, um, you, you know, in, uh, in other circles, and perhaps maybe in even in a different life, you may have debated people over whether there is one or two and what the implications are for the, the perfect witness of the Bible. Those kinds of debates kind of, they miss what's actually going on by the fact that, that we see a difference surface here. Um, clearly, like, what I, what I want to uncover is that there is, there's a reason that Matthew wants to emphasize or draw this image in your mind of, um, of you know, a, a donkey and its colt in the picture. And so, you know, and despite whatever difficulties might come to mind of like imagining Jesus riding into town on, on two donkeys, you know, scholars have like reconstructed what that could have looked like. So that's, that's actually what it, what it seems like. Just, you know, riding in like a boss, um, like, like a king of Israel. Um, no, but actually it's, I think many scenarios posited are that Jesus would be, um, riding in on one, and then the other one would, would be alongside. But here's what we read in our text um, so far. So in Matthew, it said, this took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, in the actual Hebrew poetry that this would come from, you could look at that and say that um, that's actually describing one donkey, and it's just a richer description in that last line. But, you know, Matthew could look at this, and, and perhaps Matthew saw Jesus riding on two donkeys and immediately wanted to bring this text to mind, to say that when you see Jesus riding into town on these donkeys, this is, what, this is the, the backdrop that you should have in mind. He is fulfilling this messianic prophecy. Now, in order to really appreciate that too, though, we have to do a, a little, like a quick sense check on how messianic prophecies actually work. Because I think the way we often use that kind of language, we say, oh, they did that to fulfill that prophecy, means that there was a future-looking prediction uh, and then the thing happened, and the thing happening was proof that whoever wrote, you know, the, made the prediction is, like, reliable. Uh, and so a lot of how we, uh, how we often think about, like, messianic prophecies predicting Jesus kind of tend to operate within that framework. So let's just, like, clarify really quick. How do messianic prophecies work? There is, uh, like, the, you know, the most common idea is that perhaps back then, in the days of Jesus, in the centuries leading up to him, there, people had a list where it said, 
said, my ideal Messiah must, and then there's like a very specific set of circumstances that this Messiah had to fulfill in order to be considered the actual Messiah. It would be that Messiah must be born in Bethlehem, have a messenger who prepares the way for him, enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey, right? This is the one that we're talking about now. Be betrayed but for 30 pieces of silver, remain silent while being afflicted, die by having his hands and feet pierced, and on and on and on. Then the idea is that those predictions are, and they're all from the Old Testament. They're so specific that nobody could fulfill all of the different specific predictions by chance. And so if it ever happened that somebody did fulfill all of those things, that would be proof enough of uh, the, the divine backing of whoever that <clears throat> messianic figure was. And sure enough, the people who make this argument would say, Jesus is the one who fulfilled every single one of these things. The way that it works is, you know, you make these calculations and then, you know, you're, you're actually like literally there are people who calculate the probabilities of fulfilling all of those things. And then all of a sudden you find your perfect match. Literally, the people who work on this are like, oh yeah, there's a one in 10 to the 157th power chance of someone fulfilling all of those things. Therefore, Jesus is God. Like that's, that's how it goes. That actually, that argument was popularized in an apologetics book that Kevin alluded to uh, last week, like evidence that demands a verdict. To this day, there are many people who still think about messianic prophecies working that way. In reality, there was no such list like that. Those were not forward-looking predictions. Uh, really, if we're thinking about what the list might have looked like back then, if there were, were such a thing, it would be more around these like pillars, things that like are very important, like restoring Israel, overthrowing foreign oppressors, putting a king on the throne forever, and putting a priest in the temple forever. Those would be the kind of expectations that they had. And what Jesus is doing is, um, or what, what Matthew is doing, is that he sees Jesus fitting the broad type of these higher level goals. And he's reading backwards into the Old Testament saying, there are so many things that speak to me in retrospect, that show me the kind of king that Jesus was. In particular, this, in quoting uh, Zechariah, this is an image of a humble king entering Jerusalem to establish peace and reign uh, in peace over Israel forever. Now, the, the irony here, though, is that uh, as Jesus uh, rides in uh, on a donkey, um, you can still have those, these kinds of expectations that, 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 like, oh, what a humble king, and uh, still not fully understand what Jesus is trying to do. Um, I do think that it is very likely that um, even if that this very supportive crowd of Jesus saw him riding in on a donkey and knew that that had to do with Jesus's humility, they would still think in their schema, a king can humbly slaughter their foreign oppressors. Like that, that would not have disrupt, like broken their brains on how that should work. Um, Jesus's own disciples are, are strapped with swords and will be ready to throw down to protect him when he gets arrested just a few days from now. So clearly, they, they're not on, fully on board yet with just how humble Jesus's mission uh, actually is. But here we go where Jesus is showing us a kind of power where you're willing to sacrifice it all for those you love, whether those you love will understand it or not. Jesus didn't wait for them to get fully on board before he went with his plan. He knew that their faith was enough and that we would go along with it. 
Um, that irony uh, runs even deeper um, when you see um, you know, Jesus is clearly um, emotional about this potential disconnect uh, that is occurring between the expectations that these crowds have and what he thinks he's here to do. Um, the Gospel of Luke actually uh, describes just a little bit after this triumphal entry scene. It says, as Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, if you, referring to the Pharisees, even you had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. I mean, Jesus is distraught over the disconnect that is, uh, that is occurring between the expectations of this crowd and, and what he is there to accomplish. One other dimension to like help understand what these expectations were that, that the crowd had is to then talk about the temple. So um, when, we, when we think through the temple, one of the things to keep in mind is, that, is just how purposefully Jesus is uh, escalating the situation. So we already talked about how he rode into town on a donkey. His disciples, if you read the rest of the gospels, they walk everywhere all the time. Like that's what they spend like so much of their lives, their ministry doing. But he didn't do that here. He specifically chose to ride into town on a donkey. He, not, not because of some like, uh, you know, forward-looking prophet shooting their shot to make a prediction. It was Jesus who was consciously trying to shape an image for this crowd that he is their king. He is a humble king that is there to rescue them. And he is bringing with him a ta- uh, like a crowd of outsiders. So these are probably Galileans, people who have been with him throughout his ministry, who know him, and they have, been, they have now followed him into Jerusalem the heart of power and and the religious establishment in Jesus's day. And he chose to do this during the week of one of their biggest festivals. He is looking for an altercation. And perhaps when he's crying, he knows where this story is headed when you pick a fight like that. But he does not back down from picking that fight. So when Jesus enters the town, the, one of the, the very first big actions that he takes while he is in town is to, to cleanse the temple. There's this famous scene uh, in the Gospels where Jesus uh, fashions a whip and like literally uh, chastises the, the people who are in the temple industrial complex, um, condemning them for the, the corruption that, that is taking place, declaring that that temple should be uh, a house for God. He will actually then uh, predict that that temple is going to be destroyed and that he will also claim, like throughout other gospel accounts, that while temples can be destroyed, especially if you use violence to protect them, the real dwelling place of God is found, Jesus will say, in him and his followers. And there are no weapons that can destroy the peace, justice, mercy, and the spirit of God that lives in Jesus and God's people. He will ultimately be saying, Either you can bank on the temple to save you, or you can bank on me. And that is presenting a very hard scenario for the religious establishment that kind of lived their lives based on the status quo of the power that that temple brings. 
That is actually the, um, it will uh, escalate to the, um, the Pharisees actually, this is part of what they have in mind when the Pharisees object to what's going on by saying, uh, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, order your disciples to stop. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout. Jesus has passed a point of no return uh, in his ministry. In other accounts of the gospels, he has been to Jerusalem before, but not like this. Like this is, this, this is Holy Week. This is the end. This is where, where Jesus is headed. The last thing that I wanted us to talk about together is actually the, the crowd. And the, uh, the crowd is actually very instructive for us, I think, as a model of faith. Uh, now, if, uh, you know, so far we, we've been highlighting just how hard it would have been for the people in Jesus' day to understand uh, what Jesus was trying to accomplish. We've been talking about the, you know, the kingdom that Jesus seemed to be bringing was ironic and confusing. Uh, there, was a, there was an element of like incomprehensible nature uh, of Jesus' mission. Given that, that kind of subtext is actually very common when preachers preach a sermon on the crowds uh, or the crowd on Palm Sunday to fit this kind of like, um, this, uh, like this narrative. So the, the way these, these sermons or exhortations typically go is you would say, like, look at the fickleness of that crowd. We're at the beginning of the week. They are all cheering. They're doing their palm branches, um, celebrating, shouting Hosanna. And then by the end of the week, just a few days later, they will say, the, the, the way this, these sermons are preached, they'll say, the, those same people abandon Jesus and are shouting, crucify him, right? So this is, and often like the, the, the um, takeaway from that is, you know, it speaks to how, in many ways, we all, every single one of us, abandons Jesus. And that uh, it is impossible for people to have like truly understood what the nature of uh, Jesus's mission was. And it's supposed to be a call to be, like be humble about what you can and can't know. And I, I, there is, there's certainly like many good things about that idea. In some sense, Jesus was uniquely lonely when he was executed. Uh, and in some sense, there is, a, there is a bigger sense in which that does constitute humanity abandoning him. But I don't actually think that's the story that's going on with the crowds in particular. And I think what's actually happening with the, with the crowd here in particular is, um, is even richer than the, the, the common way of framing this story. There is something uh, uh, happening here that I think uh, it, it's easier to pick up if we actually can parse out um, who, the crowd, uh, who the crowd is. So there are actually, in this story, two crowds. It is easy to conflate the two, like, uh, like we just did. Um, but once you see that they are, they're, in fact, distinct, it's actually not that hard to parse them out. There is uh, one group that are the outsiders. That is the crowd that Jesus rolls into town with. Those are the ones that we literally outsiders. They are, they're coming in from the town. They don't live in Jerusalem. They have followed Jesus. They have been following Jesus. They are the ones who have been, over the years leading up to this, touched, like physically touched by Jesus, healed by Jesus, 
fed by Jesus, freed by Jesus. Those are the ones who are following him into town. And then there is the crowd that confronts those people when Jesus enters town. Now that is the, like, those are the insiders, the ones with power, the ones with prestige and privilege and resources. Those are the ones who have so much to lose by Jesus upending the status quo of that city. It is the outsiders in the gospel accounts who say things like, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they're the ones who recognize him. This is Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. And it is the insiders who in these same accounts will say things like, who is this? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after Jesus. Those are the ones too who later in the week will say, crucify him. So on some level, it actually seems like the outsiders kind of, they, they are not ready to abandon him. It does not look like that from the way this story looks right here. Now, it, obvious, it seems obvious that there were tons of critical details that the outsiders who followed Jesus didn't get. They were probably hoping that salvation did involve killing at least some Romans. Like that was, that's, that was a normal expectation of that day. Maybe they were thinking that whatever opposition Jesus encountered by the Jerusalem leadership the Jerusalem leadership would eventually come around. There's, then Israel would be a united front in this case. They would probably consider the movement a failure if Jesus died, right? These are, these are exactly what you would expect them to be thinking. I would even argue, based on Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that he prays before he is arrested, that even Jesus is not completely sure about how it all has to go down. That's a discussion for a Good Friday for another time. But it also seems obvious that Jesus and his followers understood enough. Palm Sunday teaches us that the people that Jesus spent his ministry with, the last, the lost, the least, the leftover, the looked over, they can sense what real justice, peace, and mercy looks like. And they will pursue it straight into hostile territory if they have to. You know, we often say, oh, everyone abandoned Jesus. But no, not everybody. Don't sleep on the voices of those who are on the margins, who were actually there with Jesus all along. Was Jesus alone when he was dying on the cross? Was Jesus alone with his, when his uh, body needed burial? And was Jesus alone a couple days later at his tomb? Who was with him? And think about who was with him. Did they understand the significance of what they were doing or what was happening when Jesus was dying on the cross? Did they understand the significance of what they were doing when they were burying his body? Did they understand what would happen when they were approaching what they thought was a corpse a couple days after Jesus' execution? No, they didn't understand any of those things. But what they did know was that they wanted to be where Jesus was. And that's it. That's really it. That's enough. So many people in our community are burdened with doubts 
and fears and indecision about going all in on Jesus. Um, many of us were on the fence. You're worried uh, about what you're getting yourself into. Uh, you are uh, concerned about the stakes or the responsibilities or the uh, accountability that goes along with following Jesus. And many of you have been burned by all of that before, and that is why you're very hesitant to jump back in again. All of that is very understandable and we are here with you wherever you are for that. But following Jesus, remember, is not about extinguishing those fears and doubts. It's not about knowing enough to feel secure or to feel in control of the narrative. Following Jesus is pledging allegiance in confession and baptism that Jesus is Lord amidst all of the doubts and fears and lack of control. It's admitting that you don't know where this Jesus movement will move you, but you are willing to go along for the ride. It's to say that wherever Jesus is, that's where I want to be. We're now pivoting into our time together as we think of the, the sacrifice that Jesus did to unite all of us to show us a way that the world works that would have been impossible to see otherwise. And we do it with a tradition that Jesus and his followers have had from the beginning, from this holy week that we are celebrating now, where it says, for in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup gave thanks and gave it to them saying, uh, do this, uh, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.